I'm doing all right. I am putting one foot in front of the other, and I'm trusting that I'm going to come out on the other side and step into a really joyful place. I'm Rebecca Huntington. You're listening to The Fine Line. Real stories of adventure, risk, and rescue in the backcountry of Jackson Hole, Wyoming. This podcast is produced by Backcountry Zero, a project of the Teton County Search and Rescue Foundation. This episode of The Fine Line is supported by Raintree Foundation, a family foundation with a strong attachment to Wyoming, and in particular, the Jackson Hole region. Raintree's primary focus is education, but the foundation also supports a variety of projects that bring people into the outdoors, and through Teton County Search and Rescue, help them return when needed. You can support the volunteers at Teton County Search and Rescue by making an online donation today. Go to tetoncountysar.org donate. You can support The Fine Line by going to iTunes or wherever you get your podcast and giving us a review. In this episode, Matt Hansen from the Teton County Search and Rescue Foundation explores the tragic outcome and lessons learned from an avalanche last year on Teton Pass. After it was discovered that Trace Carrillo did not have an operating beacon when he was buried by an avalanche on Taylor Mountain on April 1st, 2020, it seemed to be a pretty straightforward explanation for why he died. While we at Teton County Search and Rescue Foundation will always stress the importance of doing beacon checks as part of your daily routine, Carrillo's touring partner that day, Anna Mattire, says that alone doesn't account for the complicated nature of the accident. She believes it was a combination of factors, including their terrain choice, weather, and group dynamics, as well as simply being members of a ski culture that continually glorifies big objectives while leaving little room to learn and grow. Concluding this two-part series of The Fine Line, we hear from a Teton County Search and Rescue team member about how the team manages stress trauma. Matire, meanwhile, goes deeper into what happened up on Taylor, what steps she says we can all take to positively shift backcountry ski culture, and what her future might hold. My name is Jennifer Sparks, and I joined Search and Rescue in 1998. I'm originally from Vermont, and I did not ski when I moved here. <laughs> and um, But I've learned how to ski since then, and Search and Rescue has, has brought some skills to my wheelhouse, which I, I'm, I'm very happy for that opportunity, for sure. When you look back on April 1st, we were just going into the great uncertainty of the pandemic. The ski resorts were shut down, the park was shut down, but a lot of people were still out skiing up on the pass and other places. But when you look back on that day and time, what do you remember about it being different from the search and rescue perspective? Like when you guys first got that call and you responded to an avalanche up on Taylor Mountain. Everything was closed as far as people recreating in the village and in the park. Really, the only close access was on the pass. And I think it was important for people to continue to get outside and clear their minds and be outside. That's why we live in Jackson. But the thing that was weird is, is COVID was so new to everyone that nobody really knew how to act or how to even be with other people. Like we were getting such mixed messages like stay away, you know, it's okay, don't worry. Masks weren't even a thing at that point. We got the page, we got the information. It was sort of later in the day and none of us carpooled, which is, we always carpool. 
I mean, it's, it's a pain to carpool because you don't have your stuff with you, which inevitably you're like, oh, I forgot my skins or whatever, I forgot my coat. But carpooling is a big thing because you kind of discuss what's going to happen, how's this going to play out, especially if it's a longer drive, anything over than 20 minutes, you're sort of nervous. But by the time you get there, you're like, okay, here's our plan. You've talked through it with your SAR buddy. But none of us carpooled and we got to the parking lot and there was the RP reporting party, Anna, still in shock. And and the hardest part, I think, for me was the fact that we didn't even know if we could touch each other, embrace each other or give each other a hug or like, you know, you just kind of had to stand back and look at each other and say, well, are, are you okay? And clearly she was not okay. And typically, you know, you would go sit with that person in the car, hold their hand, give them a hug, tell them that it will be okay. Um, you know, I don't know the outcome, but I think that was what was so different about this rescue versus the other ones, especially when there is a fatality or a missing person. I mean, that person has no clue as to what the outcome is going to be until there's a body or a recovery or, or the person comes out a-okay. And Anna's sort of a person that needs a embracing and, and a hug. And she would, I would think, would say that too. She's sort of a empathetic, compassionate person herself. So that was really hard for everyone on the team because we sort of all stood back and watched her so upset, but couldn't embrace her or say, hey, let's talk through this, you know, other than 10 feet apart. We've spent a lot of time in the last, I would say, 18 months working on mental wellness and mental training because we sort of look back and we say, you know, you get on a rescue and there's their friend that's been sitting there for two hours waiting for us to show up. Maybe the person's fine and they just have a just have a broken tip fib. But they're, you know, they're just as much shock as the person who's hurt because they're waiting and and you know, maybe you're watching your actual friend in so much pain or or dying. And that person is impacted as well. And and we sort of whisk in and, and take away the injured person. And then that that other reporting party is, is sort of sent off like, see you later. I'm sure that those people have impact as well. And so we've stepped up and it's a new role, I guess, and and taking care of the reporting party, the RP. And it's been impactful. But it's also it's I don't think people that signed up for search and rescue thought in the back of their mind, I'm I'm really excited to um take on this role of, you know, being a therapist on scene. Um, that's a heavy job. The team's really been working on stress injuries uh and making it really part of the entire team um, training, you know, they, it was probably, probably eight months ago now, um, you know, we, we got the note that, Hey, you should go get it. Everyone on the team is welcome to get a tune up. Like you would get your teeth cleaned. We'll get a mental wellness tune up, but the foundation has been really important in, in making this um, one of sort of the top priorities. I would want the community to know, I mean, there is enough shaming on social media as it is. Our team is not that is not what we do. You know, we don't show up on a scene and ever make somebody feel like, why are you here? Why'd you make this mistake? Why'd you make this decision? Our job is to make people feel safe and get them out of there safely and, and in a timely fashion. And, and also to help the RP understand like accidents happen and happens to people that are, you know, super knowledgeable in the backcountry or people that it's the first time they're out we try to be as professional and effective as we can be, but part of that is being accepting and compassionate and empathetic on scene and making those people feel like, Hey, it's going to be okay. A couple of years ago, several agencies that respond to emergencies in Jackson 
got together to form the Teton Interagency Peer Support Group, or TIPS. This program has helped elevate psychological first aid as a priority in our community and provides free mental health services for all first responders and their families in Teton County. But even if you're not a first responder, you have options. Mental Health JH offers anyone in our community six therapy sessions for free. In the same way we seek doctors to treat broken bones after a ski accident, we should seek out mental health professionals to heal stress injuries. Information on how to access these two important services is in our show notes for this episode. After the avalanche on Taylor, Matire found a path forward by getting professional help. She also spent time speaking with her parents, doing Zoom yoga since she couldn't leave the house during the pandemic, and as a talented artist, painting with watercolors. She had a lot of time to think about what happened. It seems like, you know, people, and myself definitely included, they want to make sense of why this happened. They want to really figure it out. And when it comes to the surface that the beacon wasn't transmitting, it is easy for people who weren't there to think, to draw the conclusion that if his beacon would have been transmitting, then I would have been able to find him. If we would have done a beacon check, then his beacon would have been transmitting and I would have been able to find him or search and rescue would have been able to find him and maybe he would have been able, maybe he would have survived. And I'm not saying that that is not true because there's a possibility that that could have happened. But in reality, in this situation, that possibility is actually very low. It's more likely that because of where Trace was found, which was at the toe of the avalanche, and because of how long it took me to get down to that area, and because when I was that far down the mountain, I had probably traversed too far over to the, to the east to even be within transmitting distance of his beacon. So all of those things considered, it's, it's quite possible that even a transmitting beacon couldn't have saved his life in this situation. Why that's important to me to share is because it requires us all to confront the complicated nature of these situations. And maybe there's other things that we can focus on in addition to beacon checks that can help us be a little bit better prepared. I wish I could have known the terrain better. I wish that I would have stopped us at some point to to look at a map or, you know, pull up pull up Gaia or something and um, just become more familiar with the aspect that we were skiing so that I could know the gully that the avalanche path took, where it led to. I really want to stress to people that before they before they ski anything in the backcountry, that they make sure that everybody in their group is in some way familiar with the area that they're going to be skiing. And if they're new to that area, to collaborate and look at maps and 
um, have discussions about the different features in the area where you're going to be skiing. So you talk about where the cliff bands are, where the terrain traps are, and things like that, so that, you know, if you're the expert or if you're the person that's that's found yourself leading the group, that if for some reason you are lost or buried, that your group will be empowered to feel like they can get out safely and they can look for you. What advice do you have for people who are in a similar situation where they are in the backcountry with somebody who is has more experience and if they feel maybe reluctant to you know talk about things in my particular situation i encourage people to be okay with speaking up and you know i know i know that trace would have would have happily done a beacon check and that any step of the way i could have brought up any of my concerns and that I doubt he would have felt like it was a challenge to his leadership at all. And hopefully the people that all of us are going out and skiing with are similar in that way and wouldn't feel challenged or threatened by a question or a concern. It's really tough, right? Because there is, when we ski with people who have more experience, there is this element of trust that we put in them. You just sort of trust that things are going to be okay. For most of my backcountry skiing, which, like I said, is I was like just getting into it. So for the most part, like I was, I was just following my more experienced friends. And for the most part, I did, I did follow them without without a question or a doubt really even coming into my mind. I didn't really often find myself in a position where I felt uncomfortable with my friend's decision-making who were guiding me. Maybe I didn't know enough to feel uncomfortable. I think that most of the time people do get lucky and eventually it starts to become kind of where we're operating from is this assumption that we're going to get, that we're going to be lucky. And I think that, you know, my friends that have been in very small scale avalanches where they've been able to like ride out of them and be okay. I, I think that, you know, instead of that experience instilling like a lot of a new level of, awareness of the danger I think sometimes it instead makes people feel even more capable I kind of want to back up and talk about a little bit more about my experience on April 1st when I was trying to figure out how to carry out my beacon search and what was going through my mind because in addition to all the stress and overwhelm with the avalanche itself, I also was experiencing a lot of stress and fear around how my community would see me after this. And that was already happening to me when I was first starting to carry out my beacon search. I was 
wondering what would happen if Trace was was just totally fine and was trying to find me somewhere and like I made a big deal about this avalanche happening and it didn't even you know hurt anybody or I guess I was like worried that maybe people would be judging me for even being involved in an avalanche in the first place or I was I was honestly worried that if I called search and rescue especially because it was COVID and that if everything turned out to be fine and Trace turned out to be fine that I could be criticized for having like caused an avalanche on the past during COVID and that I bring that up because um, I've actually really struggled with a lot of guilt around having even had those thoughts and like I've felt like those thoughts were really inappropriate to have at that moment when someone's someone's entire life was on the line and I felt really critical of myself for um, having these like thoughts of like social self-preservation many times asked myself like why why were these thoughts um, so powerful that they had a presence at this critical moment um, and so what's come out of that kind of exploration around trying to figure out these thoughts is I've become much more aware of how people are talking about avalanches, backcountry safety, and near misses of all different kinds. After the avalanche and kind of continuing to now, I've fluctuated in my acceptance of myself as as a beginner and the role that that played in the avalanche. Um, I've fluctuated from an acceptance of that to like wanting to deny it or try to prove myself as um, as knowledgeable enough to make the avalanche not my fault, I guess. Um, but, and I think that that, those moments where I find myself trying to deny my naivety um, is a reflection of or an expression of um, something that I think a lot of people experience when they're new to something, especially in a place like Jackson, that's full of lots of lots of experts and lots of people who have been doing these really cool outdoor um, extreme sports for a really long time. It's like when someone like me shows up and um, we're new to the scene, maybe like, there's a, a desire to prove yourself is not too new. You're not too new to this, even though you're pretty new. But, um, and I think in not fully just allowing ourselves to be new to something or be a beginner, um, it, I think it can be dangerous and I also think that it's just it's kind of like it's kind of sad because 
it's okay to be it's okay to be a beginner and it's okay to be new um even in a place like Jackson and um there's space for us there's space for people who are new to the backcountry um or at least there should be and I do want to take this opportunity to call out to people who have a lot of experience and who might consider themselves close to being an expert to help make space for these people who are new to the backcountry in our community. And um, maybe, maybe like offer to take a new person out, but onto terrain that is like suitable for, for beginners. So like I was saying to you earlier, Matt, like when we transition from the resort into the backcountry, like maybe we need to start back at at green runs, the equivalent of like a green run in the backcountry, or equivalent of like a blue square. Instead of instead of like finding the equivalent of Corbett's Coulard in the backcountry. Because there's a lot more to learn in order to stay safe. And so maybe we need to take a few steps back and and through our leaders, the people who have more experience, being willing to take those steps back with us, um, I think would be a great way to show beginners in our community that there's space for them and that they deserve to be there too. You know, in, in the resort, I'm, I'm writing stuff, I'm skiing stuff that like, would absolutely be super dangerous avalanche terrain if it were in the backcountry. Um, but because, you know, it's avalanche controlled by ski patrol, um, I, like the risk of avalanche isn't really something that's on my mind too much when I'm inside the resort. And I think that I've had, I've now experienced these thrills of riding this really steep and like really aesthetic and amazing terrain inside the resort and so then when I go out in the backcountry and I I see things that look like the terrain that I ski in the resort I get so excited and I think about how like this whole like area that I'm looking at I I have the skills to be able to ski and there's there's so many possibilities and um I guess it makes it hard for me to want to ski something low angle and something mellow when I feel like I have the skills to ski something really thrilling and something that tests my abilities because that's the kind of person that I am and so I guess I want to kind of talk to the other people out there who are similar to me and who are so excited to take the skills that they've developed in the resort and bring them out in the backcountry. I want to encourage them to be okay with a more mellow option. Because while you're getting to know the snowpack, while you're, while you're learning so much about snow science and safety and doing like your practice beacon searches and things like that you want to be staying in terrain that is going to be forgiving of your mistakes over the past several years as skier and commuter traffic has increased to historic levels on teton pass the dialogue surrounding etiquette has become an emotionally charged debate 
Matire says her experience has shown that the way we frame conversations about Teton Pass should consider how they might give some users permission to judge or shame other users. In a debate that has a complicated history and many different stakeholders with sometimes competing interests, Matire believes we can all improve our messaging. There's a lot of threats, like subtle threats of alienation and judgment in the way that we sometimes talk about like these near misses or even tragic events and in especially in how we are in our approach to trying to encourage people to make smart decisions in the backcountry. I do want people to be thinking about how like when someone is traumatized, symptoms of trauma include already guilt, shame, worthlessness, loss of sense of self. Those feelings are extremely intense. Like your whole world feels like it has shattered in front of you. And I hope that other people will feel inspired to try to create narratives that don't play on guilt, shame, anything that could hint at ostracization or alienation, and that we can start just being more like thoughtful and compassionate, keeping trauma survivors in mind when we're talking about safety in the backcountry, when we're assessing near misses as kind of like a, a bare bones start or like some ideas or examples I could throw out there emphasizing how no one is indestructible. No one is above the risk of an avalanche or something else bad happening to them when they're out in nature like we all are going to make mistakes and a lot of times we'll get away with those mistakes and sometimes we won't one of the best ways to minimize your risk of making those mistakes is to get a formal avalanche education and then practice what you've learned since carrillo's passing his friends and family have come together to create a scholarship fund in his name at the university of utah once it is fully funded This endowed scholarship will provide free level one avalanche courses to students at the university in perpetuity. You can learn more about this fund and find ways to contribute by checking out the link in our show notes. Back on the farm, Matar thinks about ways to communicate about avalanches in between long walks with the resident goats. She keeps an eye on the weather for when she can go snowboarding again. My journey of healing is not over at all and um it kind of comes in waves and right now I'm actually kind of feeling like I'm in the middle of a really long (laughs) wave um but I'm starting to see some some options that feel that feel like inspiring my future is open I do want to let everyone know that I plan to snowboard again, <laughs> and I a lot of life left to live, and I'm definitely looking forward to getting back out in the mountains, and definitely 
definitely going to to go touring again someday and I'm really looking forward to touring on some low angle and treat terrain. Remember your loved ones and always know before you go. This podcast is produced by Backcountry Zero, a vision of the Teton County Search and Rescue Foundation to reduce fatalities and serious injuries in the Tetons. Find out more at backcountryzero.com.